0: to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of, bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of most of the artworks mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation— There will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Michelangelo. Now let's continue with part two of our story about Michelangelo. After the Sistine Chapel was completed, Michelangelo hoped to return to Julius's tomb. This was complicated by the death of the Pope on February 21, 1513. Julius's family extended his commission, and he began work again without distractions for the next three years. During this time period, he created another singular work, Moses, a remarkable representation of the Old Testament prophet, which Vasari describes as, quote, unequaled by any modern or ancient work, unquote. It would become the focus of Julius II's proposed tomb, a project that would require reorganization and redesign for the next three decades. Ultimately, the Moses would become the focal point of an ultimately scaled-down structure in the church of San Pietro in Wincoli in Rome. However, Julius II's remains are actually buried in the floor of St. Peter's Basilica, in what was supposed to be a temporary site. This resulted from some immediate political developments following the death of Julius. After being forced into political exile in 1494, the Medici were able to return to power in Florence. Giovanni de' Medici, who had lived with Michelangelo as a teenager, was elected pope and succeeded Julius in 1513. That meant that a giant tomb memorializing a rival church faction would not be allowed to dominate the cathedral under the Medici's direct control. With the ascendance of Giovanni as Leo X, Michelangelo's brother Buonarroto achieved a prominent position within the Florentine government. Members of the Medici clan clamored for Michelangelo to return to his hometown and begin work on the unfinished facade of their parish church. A commission was formally offered. Enormous amounts of marble were selected and ordered, and a wooden model of the new facade was constructed. Just as work was to begin, Lorenzo de' Medici, grandson of Il Magnifico, and the most enthusiastic supporter of the project, died suddenly. Pope Leo X took another look at the probable expenses and canceled the project, suggesting that a modest tomb be substituted. The tomb would evolve into the Medici chapels, burial place of four members of the ruling family, including Lorenzo il Magnifico. Michelangelo would have to settle on spending the next two years on this project, also sweating out the death of Leo X and a new pope, Adrian VI, a reformer who bandied about the idea of destroying the Sistine Chapel murals. Intent on curtailing what he believed to be decadent excesses, this pope was the last non-Italian to serve until John Paul II. Adrian was said to have initially been a compromise choice by those who did not want another Medici. When Adrian died less than two years into his reign, Giulio de' Medici was ordained as Clement VII in November of 1523. Clement was aware that Michelangelo had spent the previous five years spinning his wheels. He encouraged the artist to finish the chapels as quickly as possible, but also commissioned a new project, the Laurentian Library. Pope Clement wished to make a statement that the Medici were not wealthy patrons acquiring artwork, but learned and intelligent philanthropists of substance. But he also had the same grasping egomania of some of his immediate predecessors. When he proposed a 50-foot-tall colossus for the plaza in front of San Lorenzo, Michelangelo replied sarcastically that he would make it at least 80 feet high with a barber shop in the rump and bells in the figure's mouth he concluded his letter with the elliptical comment, to do or not do the things that are to be done, which you say are not now to be done, it is better to let them be done by whoever will do them, for I will have so much to do that I don't wish to do more. Clearly Michelangelo at this point in his life was a supremely confident, if not arrogant human being. To resort to this level of informality with such an authority figure indicates a practically world-weary tolerance of the mere mortals around him, no matter how politically powerful. Clement, who had known Michelangelo for 30 years and also lived with him in the Medici Palace in younger days, responded by practically apologizing, reassuring the artist that he would continue to have every possible resource and quietly drop the notion of the Colossus. While Clement VII was a devoted patron of the arts, he wasn't much of a politician. In 1527, the Papal States and the Catholic Church became embroiled in one of the first European conflicts that involved much of the continent. Many of the nation-states of Italy were at one time part of the Holy Roman Empire. When Francis I of France began to compete for city-states like Milan, Charles V, King of Spain, and Holy Roman Emperor went to war ultimately defeating Francis and further asserting his authority over Italy. Clement hastily organized a coalition, including France, to retake Italian territory. But 34,000 Holy Roman Empire soldiers, including 16,000 German mercenaries, responded, defeating Clement's coalition. When the Empire troops were not paid what they were owed, they insisted on marching on Rome, which was only defended by 5,000 militia, and a small contingent of Swiss guards. The invaders were commanded by Charles III, the Duke of Bourbon, and when he was killed during the assault on Rome, any restraint on the part of these troops disappeared. They quickly captured the city, executed hundreds of militiamen, and killed most of the Swiss guard protecting Pope Clement. He narrowly escaped through the Passetto di Borgo to the Castle Sant'Angelo with the remnants of the guard protecting him. A prisoner in the castle for six months, he eventually bribed his way out of the city and fled. In the meantime, Republicans took this opportunity to again expel the Medici from power in Florence. Clement returned to Rome in October of 1528 and immediately signed a treaty with Charles V that called for the Medicis to be restored to Florence amidst many papal concessions. The next few months would be difficult for both Michelangelo and Tuscany, Surprisingly, despite Clement's personal request to return to Rome, Michelangelo refused and was appointed governor general of the fortifications of Florence. He was more loyal to a democratic government in his hometown as opposed to any ruler or rival government. As an architect, Michelangelo would know something about 16th century military fortifications. In 1528, economic hard times and even plague hit Florence. This epidemic claimed the life of Michelangelo's brother, Buonarroto. The artist quickly picked up the funeral expenses and continued preparing for the inevitable Holy Roman and papal invasion. The offensive would arrive by October 1529, but the formidable fortifications surrounding the city would deter any full-scale attack. Instead, the alliance laid siege to Florence and repelled any local attempts to break the siege. On August 10, 1530, Florence surrendered. Following the struggle, Many of the Republic's political leaders were rounded up and executed, or exiled, and the Medicis were restored. Surprisingly, Clement did not punish Michelangelo. He requested that he return to work on the chapels at San Lorenzo and restored Michelangelo's salary. His family's agricultural properties had been ravaged by the recent warfare. This income would again lift the entire Buonarroti family out of extreme financial difficulty. Although the setbacks of the previous three years had left Michelangelo emaciated and depressed, financial considerations forced him to persevere on two projects he had come to dislike. He continued to work on the Medici chapels out of fear of retribution, and the nephew of Julius II, Francesco Maria della Rovere, the Duke of Urbino, constantly pestered him about the completion of his uncle's tomb. In Florence, even more annoying and possibly dangerous was the installation of 19-year-old Alessandro de' Medici as the Duke of Florence, this position purchased by Clement VII from Charles V. This erratic individual disliked Michelangelo, and the artist feared for his life in the immediate aftermath of yet another Medici takeover of Florence. When Michelangelo heard in late September 1534 that Clement VII was fatally ill, he hastily left Florence for the last time. He left behind the unfinished Medici chapels and only the beginnings of the Laurentian Library. Both projects would have to be completed by other artists and architects. Michelangelo's professional uncertainty, generated by the death of Clement VII, was removed by the election of Paul III, Paul would turn out to be even more beneficent than his predecessor. When Michelangelo refused new commissions from the Pope, claiming his contract with Julius's heirs forbade it until the troublesome tomb was complete, Paul III interceded and helped renegotiate the agreement. This allowed Michelangelo to work on another project, a fresco on the altar wall of the Sistine Chapel. Conceptually discussed with Clement VII as a depiction of the resurrection, Michelangelo reconsidered and focused his creation on the Last Judgment. Twenty-five years after finishing his previous work on the chapel, Michelangelo presented a different kind of painting. This work contained a wide range of emotion, depictions ranging from the sublime to the grotesque, and a focus on nudity that accentuated sensuality. This groundbreaking depiction of such a religious theme was controversial, and at least one church official, Biagio de Cesena, commented, It was mostly disgraceful that in so sacred a place there should have been depicted all of those nude figures exposing themselves so shamefully. He added that the work was more appropriate for a public bath or a tavern. De Cessina's reward for his art criticism was his depiction in the lower right corner of the painting as Minos, judge of the underworld. To underline his contempt, Michelangelo added donkey ears and a serpent biting Minos' testicles. Even Michelangelo himself was not above ridicule in this depiction of symbolic judgment. In a central part of the fresco, Saint Bartholomew is depicted holding a knife and the skin that represents his death by being skinned alive. This layer of skin has retained a human form, and the head adorning the mass is clearly the tortured, gnarled face of Michelangelo. It would not be until the 1920s that this detail was noticed. More immediately, when de Cessina complained about his depiction and the painting in general to Paul III, the Pope is said to have responded, perhaps apocryphally, that while he had power in earth and in heaven, he had no control over hell, so the portrait must remain. Unfortunately, this would not be the last Vatican perspective on Michelangelo's daring creation, but for the moment, the artist could savor another completed masterpiece. It was 1541, Michelangelo was now 67 years old. That he never married, wrote erotic sonnets to younger men, spent time in Roman bathhouses that would have catered to homosexual clientele, and socialized almost exclusively with males, has caused historians to conclude that Michelangelo was a homosexual. In modern context, this might seem both obvious and inconsequential, yet in the artist's world, especially within his family, this would be viewed as unacceptably inconceivable. Not content with merely being an artistic genius, Michelangelo composed over 300 sonnets and poems. 30 of these were dedicated to Tommaso de Cavalieri, an Italian nobleman that Michelangelo met at age 57 when de Cavalieri was 23. These verses conveyed a deep attraction and romantic perspective that had unmistakable overtones, so blatant, in fact, that a subsequent volume of the poems published by a relative of Michelangelo in the 17th century altered the pronouns to the feminine gender, It has been suggested that Michelangelo's troubled, miserable self-image in The Last Judgment may indicate a sense of guilt within the deeply religious artist. Unfortunately, his patrons would leave him little time for reflection or self-discovery. As soon as the last judgment was completed, the della Rovere clan began agitating for a completion of Julius II's tomb. Luckily, Pope Paul wished to have Michelangelo focus on his own projects, namely a Vatican chapel dedicated in his honor. The pontiff helped negotiate a new agreement that limited Julius's tomb to three main sculptures, including the Moses'. This was accepted, and the more modest tomb was brought to an anticlimactic conclusion in 1545, with the completion of two statues, Leah and Rachel, placed to the left and right of Moses in a two-story facade installed in the church of San Pietro in Wincoli, the parish of Julius II. Although it has been described as the most impressive burial vault in Rome, Michelangelo summed up his perspective with one sentence, I lost the whole of my youth chained to this tomb. An older man in his 70s, Michelangelo would hope to content himself with continuing with the frescoes of the Pauline Chapel. Predictably, he would reluctantly become involved in the last great creative chapter of his life. In 1547, he would be appointed the chief architect of St. Peter's Basilica, Redesign and reconstruction of this edifice had been ongoing for five decades, but the result was a disorganized pastiche that had not progressed very far. Originally designed by Donato Bramante, Michelangelo would organize and simplify the original plans into much of what is recognizable today. Construction would continue well after his death, but the completed St. Peter's was his inspiration." Michelangelo also became preoccupied with his nephew, Leonardo, the only male offspring among the five sons of Michelangelo's father, Ludvico. Only one of these brothers ever married, so if the Buonarroti name was to survive, Leonardo would have to perpetuate it. Michelangelo had supported his nephew financially when Leonardo's father died suddenly, but his relationship with his nephew was typically volatile. Because the artist lived in Rome, and his younger relative in Florence, the relationship was conducted mostly by mail. Michelangelo would scold his nephew for his poor penmanship or vapid content. Any gifts sent his way would be rejected as poor quality or somehow deficient. But Michelangelo considered his nephew to be his son and was committed to a parental responsibility in every way. He was especially committed to selecting a suitable match for his nephew that would reflect what he considered to be the family's social standing. It seems that Michelangelo was rather a snob, eliminating several marriage prospects as socially unworthy. At last, in 1553, Leonardo would wed Cassandra Adolfi, a match that overjoyed the groom's uncle. He sent her two rings and was actually appreciative and complimentary when she sent him some linen shirts as a gift. A year later, his greatest hope was realized when Cassandra gave birth to a son. He was always very solicitous and proud of his nephew's wife and son, but typically he never met either of them in person. The other great work of this time period, the Pauline Chapel, was completed in 1549. This was one of the most important structures in the Vatican. At one time, the conclave to elect a new pope met in this room. While today this occurs in the Sistine Chapel, the College of Cardinals convenes in the Pauline Chapel to begin the selection process. Michelangelo continued his innovative style with two separate presentations, the crucifixion of St. Peter and the conversion of Saul. His efforts here were considered among the most unpopular during his lifetime seemingly distorted proportions and unusual figures presented in untraditional ways were dismissed as the work of an older man with diminished talents. The chapel was only partially completed when Paul III died November 10, 1549. Paul's successor, Julius III, assumed the papacy in February of 1550. He was an enthusiastic supporter of Michelangelo, who reconfirmed the artist's position as chief architect in the reconstruction of St. Peter's. Under Julius III, there was an acknowledgment of both Michelangelo's age and past work. He was paid a great deal of money, with less of an emphasis on daily production. This treatment also stemmed from Michelangelo's international fame, which was enhanced by the publication of Vasari's biography in 1550 the author was lucky to gain access to Michelangelo. Perhaps the aging artist realized the benefit of being able to shape an account of his life. Vasari also must have recognized the benefits of presenting an extremely complimentary perspective that helped make Michelangelo a legend in his own time. The deaths of his only surviving brother, Gizmondo, in 1555, and his servant of 25 years, Urbino, in 1556, cast a pall over Michelangelo's household. He has been depicted as a solitary figure who toiled alone and lived a lonely life, but Michelangelo surrounded himself with a half-dozen servants and helpers. He enthusiastically moved in Urbino's wife when his assistant got married, and even served as the godfather to Urbino's firstborn son, named Michelangelo, of course. He was stricken with grief when this simple man died and even wrote to his nephew Leonardo and requested that he visit because I am an old man and should be glad to talk to you before I die. In the final decade of his life, Michelangelo would begin only one marble sculpture that would come to be known as the Rondanini Pietà. He was certainly busy with the renovation of St. Peter's, but much of his work was delegated to assistance. In 1555, two popes were chosen in rapid succession, Marcellus II, who lasted 22 days, and his replacement, Paul IV, who was decidedly hostile to Michelangelo, even ordering that the nudes and some of his paintings be covered up, a demand that was ignored for the moment. Paul IV was involved in the politics of the Counter-Reformation and the increasingly reactionary Catholicism of Philip II of Spain. This friction set off another Spanish invasion that threatened Rome and forced Michelangelo to flee briefly from the capital. He fended off repeated requests relayed via the Florentine Versari from Cosimo de Medici to return to Florence. The 82-year-old did not want to leave Rome, but he did not want to offend such a powerful ruler. He wisely apologized profusely, but fell back on the excuse that he would be punished by God if he did not remain in Rome and finish St. Peter's. It would be difficult for anyone to contradict this explanation. In fact, as he got older, frailer, and more deeply religious, Michelangelo began to frequently proclaim that he was only being kept alive by God to finish St. Peter's Basilica. By the winter of 1563-64, Michelangelo was no longer able to write the voluminous correspondence that was a major part of his human interaction. Only brief notes, written by assistants and signed with a shaky signature, would be forwarded when absolutely necessary. His entire immediate family and most of his closest friends were deceased. Most importantly, the realization that he would never live to see the completion of the massive renovation of St. Peter's weighed heavily eliciting a feeling of hopelessness expressed in a sonnet he wrote late in life. Certain of death, though not yet its hour, life is short and little of it is left for me. It delights my senses, but is no fit home for my soul, which is begging me to die. Although he would attend Mass and work on the Rondanini Pietà up until the very last days of his life, in early 1564, Michelangelo suddenly fell ill with a fever three weeks before his 89th birthday. Although his nephew was told to hurry, he did not make it to Rome before Michelangelo passed away on February 18, 1564, surrounded by, among others, his close friends Tommaso de Cavalieri and Daniel de Volterra. Michelangelo died without a will because of his perpetual complaints about money and simple lifestyle. One might infer that he was another in a long historical line of starving artists eking out a pathetic living for the sake of his art. When his nephew finally arrived to inventory his personal property, a sealed box containing a vast sum of money in gold was discovered, a sum enough to have paid the salaries of 10 artisans for over a decade. Michelangelo also owned agricultural and rental properties throughout Tuscany, enough to support his family and qualify him as a wealthy landowner. Although he famously stated to a friend, However rich I may have been, I have always lived as a poor man. This was by choice and not necessity. Michelangelo was one of the wealthiest artists who ever lived. Nephew Leonardo needed to sort out another important aspect of Michelangelo's death, where the great artist would be entombed. Because Leonardo had not been present, Michelangelo's body was transported to a temporary resting place in the nearby parish church. Leonardo knew that the current pope, Pius IV, would insist that Michelangelo be enshrined at the finished St. Peter's Basilica, and he was determined to return him to Florence, which was his uncle's wish. Leonardo hired a cart to surreptitiously and unceremoniously transport the wrapped body back to Tuscany, a trip that took 11 days. Michelangelo was interred with great fanfare in the Basilica of Santa Croce in Florence in an elaborate vault sponsored by both Cosimo de' Medici and Giorgio Vasari. In 1565, Pius IV decided to comply with the previous edict of the Council of Trent that condemned nudity and banned a beauty exciting to lust, Perhaps deliberately, he commissioned Daniel de Volterra to strategically cover Michelangelo's Last Judgment nudes with solid color disguised as cloth. Additional coverings would be applied in the 17th and 18th centuries. When the Sistine Chapel was restored in the late 20th century, many of these coverings were removed, but a few figures, like St. Bartholomew, still retained these attempts at censorship the restorers were afraid that de Volterra had scraped off the offending plaster and nothing would remain underneath. While his critics within the papal establishment have all faded into obscurity, five centuries later, Michelangelo's remarkable creations, including the restored Sistine Chapel, underline his stated belief that genius is merely eternal patience. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Michelangelo. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Michelangelo by Howard Hibbard and Michelangelo, the artist, the man, and his times by William Wallace. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.